Today we're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians, so you can go ahead and turn there. We'll be in chapter 4. Uh, for the last eight weeks or so, we, we've been in a series called Essentials, and what Pastor Matt did for us was uh, take a look at what we have defined or what we say uh, are, are kind of the, the, the non-negotiables or the, the irreducible minimum of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And that is embedded into the vision of our church here at Outward, and you know, so we've actually got it on display here on the wall over here. So we, we say we want to be a church who loves Jesus, and that means that we are all about His story, we're about His people, and we're about His rule. And so that's the work that God does in us. And then we, from that, once, we, once we, our identity is established in loving God, then we live outward through His strength, right? And so we give we serve and we speak, and so this is how the, the love of Jesus then plays itself out through us. And, and so we've spent the last eight weeks or so um, just unpacking what that looks like, and, and that's something that is going to continue to be embedded in the life of our church. So you're going to keep hearing about these things. Um, and then next week, uh, I don't want to steal Matt's thunder here, but next we're going to be starting a new series on uh, one of the Gospels. I won't give it away. I'll let him, uh, I'll let him give that away next week. But, uh, so you don't want to miss that. We're going to be diving into one of the Gospels uh, here for the next several months and looking at the life of Jesus. Uh, but today, we are going to be spending some time in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to get right to it. So we're going to pick it up in verse 7. And uh, let me just read this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God is writing a story through each of our lives. And uh, the story of our life in Christ has a beginning, that moment when we, we uh, said yes to Jesus, when, when the Holy Spirit awakened our hearts to our need for Him and, and began the work of regenerating us. Our story has an end, that, that, that moment in time where we are glorified with God and made complete and made holy. And our story has a middle. And that middle is the space that we live in now. It's, it's the day-to-day -day process of 
the work of God transforming us and sanctifying us, making us holy. And this passage that I just read that we're going to be in today that Paul writes to the church in Corinth describes the middle, describes what it's like to live between the, the, the beginning of the story and the end of the story. And if you're like me, there are times when the middle of the story can feel a little bit long or, or discouraging, or uh, we, can, we can have times when we begin to lose hope a little bit. Maybe you can relate uh, to some of these things. Maybe, maybe there are times when you're, you're in the middle, and it seems like you're just not growing in your faith as much as you wish you were, or you're not growing as quickly as you wish you were. Maybe there's times when you see there's just more sin in your life than you really want to admit to anyone. And you're discouraged that, man, I've been following Jesus for a while now. Why do I still have some of these sin struggles in my life? Or maybe there's times where you're just discouraged because you just don't have the faith that you wish you had. There's a lack of faith in your life. And, and so when we encounter these times in the middle... Right? Here's the problem that we face, is that we're desiring transformation, but we're not seeing it. We're hoping for the end, but we're not there yet. And so what Paul provides for us here in this passage in 2 Corinthians 4 is a reorientation of our outlook. He, he guides us and helps us to what our mindset should be as followers of Jesus as we live right here in the middle, and ultimately gives us encouragement to press on in Christ. So let's look at this um, together. Verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What is the treasure? What is Paul talking about right here? I'll back up a verse. In verse 6, he says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When Paul says we have this treasure, what he's talking about is our belief in the gospel. Our belief that God has shown in our hearts, given us the light of the knowledge of the saving work of Jesus. And, and so what he says is this treasure is, it's, it's, uh, you can't put a price on it, right? It is, it's uh, priceless. And, and what he says is, us carrying this treasure about in our lives is, is like taking a, a priceless treasure and storing it in a clay jar, right? Or an earthen vessel, kind of depending on your translation. And there, there's something kind of absurd about that, right? There's something uh, that, that just seems a little bit silly to have something so priceless, so worth you know, you, you can't compare its worth to anything, and it put it in something so ordinary. It'd be like if you had a, um, like a family heirloom, uh, maybe it's like a, a vase or a, you know, a watch or something, I don't know, um, and, and you, you store it in like one of those uh, disposable plastic containers, right, the ones that you like uh, put leftovers in after you're done eating, right, you put something that valuable in something so insignificant, and, and you know, those plastic containers can be pretty useful, right? But when you, when you use it to store something so valuable, it actually kind of seems like it's less, uh, it's diminished a little bit. It's, it's not as, as valuable as maybe it was 
in another setting. And Paul says, us carrying about the treasure of the good news of Jesus is kind of like that. We're kind of like these ordinary vessels carrying something remarkable. And here's the thing, that when, because of our unremarkableness, the power of God in us is seen to be even more remarkable. Because we're clay vessels, we're something that can be easily chipped, cracked, right? God's power can be made evident through our apparent weakness. God alone can receive the credit. He alone can receive the glory for what's being done in us because it's obvious that we are not the ones doing it. And this, this has a humbling effect on us, right? Uh, John Calvin says this, uh, talking of those of us who minister the gospel. He said, there should be in ministers, that's all of us, right? There should be in ministers no appearance of excellence, lest anything of distinction should throw the power of God into the shade. There should be no appearance of excellence, lest anything of distinction should throw the power of God into the shade. And that kind of puts us in our place a little bit, right? Uh, it kind of humbles us. Uh, we, my wife and I have a, 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 a relative who's, who's fairly wealthy. And a few years ago, I remember we, we spent some time with them. And uh, somehow in, in our conversation, we were talking about... Um, what you would grab if your house caught on fire, right? Like, what would you, what would you take with you when, you when you ran out of the house? And, and uh, so this relative, he, he just kind of casually says, oh, it'd probably be the Rembrandt. And we're, uh, what? <laughs> Come again? And he's like, oh, yeah, the, the Rembrandt that's over the, the fireplace. And, and they're like, oh, you, you like, like a replica? I'm like, no, no, it's, a, it's an original sketch. And yeah, we picked it up at an auction a few years ago. Are you kidding me? Like an actual, like real life sketch from the 1600s. So of course I have to go look at this thing, and sure enough, there it is above the fireplace. And there's something, to, you know, standing in the presence of something that was created by a master, right? Something that just has so much worth to it. There's there's something kind of transcendent about that. But you know, one thing that is was not memorable at all about this experience, looking at this sketch, was the frame. I couldn't tell you what the frame looked like. I could describe the, the sketch for you, right? It, it was, a, uh, it was a, a picture of the, actually the prodigal son returning, the father's embracing him, and he's kind of kneeling down, and it's this powerful sketch, but uh, the frame was not all that remarkable, not very memorable, because it wasn't the point, right? It was just a vessel. I, I realize I'm using an analogy to describe another analogy. So like we're, we're going in deep here. It's like Inception, but just go with me, right? But uh, so, so the, the, the vessel is not the point, right? That's not the important part. What's important is what's housed inside of it, right? And that's what it's like with our lives. And, and we can be tempted to kind of elevate our importance and, and think of ourselves as more than simply a clay jar, because it can be uncomfortable giving all the glory for everything good happening in our lives to God. And, and so we can make attempts to kind of clean up the jar, right, to put some paint on it, uh, maybe put some sequins or something. I don't know what you put on a clay jar. But, uh, you know, but we can make some efforts through religion or through doing good works to kind of clean up the jar. But ultimately, we're just something unremarkable, housing something incredibly remarkable. Our 
transforming power, that work of sanctifying us cannot come from us. It has to be the work of God dwelling in us. Jesus tells uh, Nicodemus in John 3, when, when Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, is a re- religious leader, he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do? What do I need to do to be saved? Um, and, and Jesus says, you must be born again. There's nothing that you can do. It has to be worked in you. It has to be power that comes from somewhere else. And so because of that, God alone wants the glory, and he deserves the glory for that surpassing power at work in our lives. It's consistent with God's character. It's what he has always done. You look through scripture, there's a whole list of the people God chooses to use are incredibly unremarkable. I mean, you think of Moses, right? He was kind of a coward. He had a speech impediment, not to mention he killed a dude. But God used Moses. Jacob was a cheater. Elijah got depressed, was suicidal. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a womanizer. Jonah ran from God. Martha was worried. Peter was impulsive and denied Jesus. And Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. If you're feeling discouraged, man, I'm weak, there's nothing all that remarkable about me, then you're in good company and know that this is often where God is poised to do some of his best work. Verse 8, Paul goes on, he says, We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul continues describing for us what this looks like for God to be glorified in us. Again, and it's not through our strength, but it's actually through our weakness, right? And this is one of the things that makes Christians utterly unique to our world. To be a Christian is in a lot of ways perplexing to people who don't have that power force. Because there's something unique about how when a Christian is afflicted but can say that they're not crushed, right? Perplexed, but they're not driven into despair. There's, there's a certain invincibility about Christians that uh, without the context of Christ, our world doesn't have an understanding of. And it defies worldly logic. Because without the hope of Christ, none of these things would make sense to an unbelieving world. And, and what Paul shows us is this is actually being in a place where we affirm, yes, I am, uh, I, I am being afflicted. Yes, I am perplexed. Yes, I am persecuted, right? Paul affirms this and says, this is pretty normative, actually. This is how God chooses to work in us. Because each one of these statements, each of these things that Paul describes shows the sustaining power of God at work in us. Now, with that said, I know that there are people in this room who you read this passage today and you say, man, I, I struggle with this because I feel pretty, pretty uh, crushed right now, right? Uh, I feel pretty pretty low and, and to the point of, of being in despair. I 
feel forsaken. If that's the season where you're at right now, then I just have a few things for us to consider together. First is this. For the Christian, God's faithfulness to you is not predicated on, it's not dependent on our ability to acknowledge his faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. It's in his character. He can't not be faithful. God's power or God's faithfulness is not predicated on our ability to acknowledge his faithfulness. Second, Scripture is our lifeline. Scripture is ultimately where we find whatever hope God has for us. Uh, Much of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, but many parts of the New Testament as well, were written to people in exile. They were, it was written to people in the, kind of in the depths of despair. They feel like God had abandoned them, and so Scripture is written in that context. Spend some time in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 talks about the Word of God and what it does for our souls, and ask God to give you eyes to see His Word in a new light. And then third, whatever depth of turmoil you find yourself in, know that Jesus carried all of that with him to the cross. In Isaiah 53, the prophet describes for us what Jesus did on the cross. And and, and notice some of the similarities here. If you feel crushed, Paul says, uh, we we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. If you feel crushed, Remember that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. If you feel driven to despair, remember that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. If you feel forsaken, remember that the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And if you feel destroyed, remember this, that they made his grave with the wicked, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus carried the depths of anything that we can experience in this life with him to the cross. He has gone there, and he wants to dwell with you as you are experiencing these things as well. And Paul goes on in verse 11. He says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. As we've said, Jesus receives glory when his power is put on display through our weakness, which manifests itself in our mortality. Right? Ultimately, we are people who are, are, are going to die. There's, there's a certain uh, mortality about all of us. And, and so what that ultimately does is points to Jesus. But what does it mean for death to be at work in us? It's kind of like a, a little bit of a morbid statement, right? Well, when, when Paul says this, when he says, for death to be at work in us, I think this means living in a continual awareness of and in confrontation with our sin. 
Right? We, we know and we're aware of the sin that dwells in us, and, and there's this constant dying to that sin, bringing it to the cross of Jesus and saying, yes, Jesus, I know you've cruci- you were crucified for this sin, and it was nailed to the cross with you. And, and that's what Jesus says when he, he calls us to die to ourselves, right? In Mark eight thirty four, he says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me. There's an identifying ourselves with the death of Christ that is necessary for us to give glory to God. 2 Corinthians 1.5, just a little bit earlier in this book, Paul says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. This idea of, of continually understanding our our mortality and the sin that has brought that about has to be on our minds, uh, has to be uh, kind of the underlying context for what God has done, for that surpassing power working in us. That, That can't be separated from the equation. They have to go together. And when death in this way is at work in the lives of you and me as Christians, the power of Jesus shines through us in a way that brings life to others. Did you catch what Paul said there? He said, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. That life is put on display, right? And and he kind of, he goes on and unpacks this a little bit more. Verse 13, he says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Last week, we spent time talking about what it means to speak, right, as, as followers of Jesus. And, and what we mean by that is to share the truth of the story of God because we've so internalized what God has done on our behalf that we can't help but then share it with others. And that's what Paul is talking about right here. He's saying the belief in what God has done, the power of God in our lives, it's so all-encompassing, right? It's so foundational and life-giving to us that we can't help but speak about it. And what Paul's doing here is he's circling us back uh, to the treasure that we talked about a few verses earlier, right? He says that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. That's the treasure again that we're holding, right? The, the power of God at work in us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And this is a promise for us that one day, he says, uh, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us up with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. There's, there's future glory here, right? This is, this is a promise for us to hold on to. Our sanctification, we are going to get to the end, and our sanctification is going to be complete. And, and uh, there's several things that happen there. David uh, Paulison writes this. He says, when the process of transformation culminates, these three things will happen. Jesus Christ will finish his work by returning as king. The Spirit will perfect our human nature in love, joy, peace, and all the other graces. And we will know our Father face to face. We're going to be perfected. 
And again, it's not by anything that we have done. It's not by our power, but it's by the surpassing power of God who raised Jesus from the dead. And so we carry this about with us in our lives. We share it with others. And, and Paul goes on in verse 15 and he says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. We began to see that there are multiple aspects of our sanctification, the, the transforming process of our lives. Um, the, there's multiple aspects of, of how God uses that. One of the ways is for the sake of others. He says, for it is for your sakes that as grace extends more to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. This is, this is what happens, right? As we are sanctified in our day-to-day -day lives, as we wrestle through our weakness, and, and as, as we see and identify the power of God at work in our lives, others see that too. That power shines through us, and the grace extends to more and more people. How many times, I mean, I'm sure you've heard testimony after testimony from people who have come to Jesus that one of the things that ultimately brought them to or at least intrigued them about Christianity was that there was something in a person that they saw. There was something that they identified or observed, and they just couldn't really explain it, right? There was just something about this person that was inviting to them. And, and here's, here's how this can be encouraging for us, I think. Um, and, and, you know, Paul says it will increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Do you, do you get, do you, ever, do you ever wonder, why is this taking so long, right? Why is my sanctification process going so slow at times. I feel like, you know, sometimes it's, it's a few steps forward and then a handful of steps back, right? And we're not making a lot of forward progress sometimes. And, and, and so sometimes I, I feel like it can be discouraging. Um, I know in my life, wondering, why, God? Why, why is this taking so long? Well, one of the reasons for a slow sanctification is that others may see God's gracious transformation at work and come to know Christ through us for the sake of others to see that power of God working in and through us. You know, I, I see this play out with, with my kids as a parent. Um, you know, there, there are a few things that reveal your, uh, your sinful tendencies and your uh, you, you just your your weaknesses as a person than having children, especially lots of them. And and I uh, I mean, man, there there have been multiple instances. But I, I remember a couple months back, like it was, I think it was bedtime, and everyone was just being unpleasant with each other. And I I was the chief of sinners, right? I was I was uh, just snapping, I think, and 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 said some unkind things to my wife, and my kids heard it, and you know, so I'm going to tuck the kids in and. And uh, it, it kind of hit me, and, and I was like, you know what? Uh, Daddy was kind of a jerk, wasn't he? And my son was like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, buddy, 
uh, I'm not perfect, and this is really important for you to understand this. And, and, um, and I said, what, what do you think I should do? Should I go apologize to mommy? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, yeah, I really need to, huh? And so I went and, and, and made things right. And, 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 and that's just one small example. There's many, many, many examples like this, right? But, but how often, like, like do we, we have an experience like this and, and we say, man, I, I'm frustrated that this is still going on. I'm not, I'm not at the level of being sanctified that I wish because I still struggle with some of these things. And, and I wonder, and, and I think Paul confirms for us here, oftentimes God is working in us so that others can see. Right? And, and others can see something changes in us as we confront our sin, as we deal with it, as we repent of it, and as the power of God is put on display. Verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is what sanctification looks like. We need God today just as much as we needed him yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. And with that, that promise is just as good today as it was yesterday and the day before that, right? God's promise of renewal in us, it's just as potent, just as real, just as powerful as it was the day we were first saved, right? It does not diminish. And so Paul says, we don't lose heart. Gospel transformation looks like this. It's the daily practice of inviting the power of God through the Holy Spirit to renew our inner self. Though the outer self is wasting away, think about a clay jar, right, or an earthen vessel, how easy it is for them to get cracks and chips and nicks in them. And if you've got something housed in a clay jar and the jar gets a crack in it, you're going to see something show through the jar, right? That outer self is wasting away like a jar getting chipped and cracked and eroding, but there's a surpassing power churning away inside. It's continually working out something new within us. And so we're sanctified not just one time, but over and over again as we walk in faith. Eugene Peterson puts it like this. He says, uh, discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. And I love that, right? It's a long obedience in the same direction. This is what sanctification looks like. It's, it's waking up every day and saying, yes, God, I know I need you again today. I need your renewal of me today just as much as I did yesterday. And I have the promise that you're going to meet me here today and do that transformation work in my life. And we can take heart in that. We can rejoice in that. And like Paul says, we don't lose hope. Verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Our sanctification, this process of being daily renewed by Jesus, is ultimately preparing us for heaven. Now, when Paul says this is our light momentary affliction, we can, we can read that and be like, it doesn't feel so light, Paul. 
right? But, but when he compares it to what's to come, look at the contrast, right? Light and momentary affliction, eternal, weighty glory. When Paul says that, that's what's coming, this is what we get to look forward to. And when you compare the two, right, there, there really is no comparison. What you're going through now, you may be in the depths of despair and God meets you right there. But the hope for us and the promise for us is in the end, this is going to look light and it's going to look momentary compared to what's coming. And how do we keep our perspective set on eternity in this way, though? How do we pull ourselves to a point of being able to see this and actually let it resonate in our hearts to the point where we can say, yes, there is hope there for me, right? Because sometimes I think it can be hard for us to drag ourselves out of the affliction that we're in. Well, the obvious way um, and we've, we've talked about this today, but it is the Holy Spirit at work in us. There's, there's the power of God at work doing this in us. But one way that God has designed for us and built into our rhythm in our Christian life is worship, right? Is, is coming together regularly like this, coming together and at church together, being the body of Christ. Because you think about this, what does worship do in us? Worship ultimately prepares us for death. You think, eh, it's kind of morbid, but, like, but, but think about this. When, when somebody dies who's a believer, and you go to their funeral, what songs are sung typically? Church songs, right? Songs that have been sung over and over again, time after time, writing the truth of this hope for us in our lives. Let me, let me pull back the curtain a little bit for what happens as we, as we uh, put these services on every Sunday morning. Um, you know, as, as you know, Matt and myself and the other worship leaders and you know, all the different people that are involved in, you know, kind of preparing our weekly services, uh, you know, we're not approaching it as, as uh, you know, how can, we, how can we entertain and inspire for an hour and a half, right? We're, there, there's a weightiness to what happens here week after week. And, and ultimately what we're doing is we're saying people need to be prepared for death, right? The, the hope of Christ prepares us to face that reality head on and say, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He's my light. He's my strength. He's my song. Coming together in worship reading the scripture and, 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 and holding the, the communion elements and, and remembering the death of Jesus for our sake, what this does is it, it, it bolsters us. It, it gives us the hope that we need. Mike Cosper uh, is a worship pastor uh, out in Kentucky, I believe, and he writes this. He says, Today we gather in exile in the world, but not of it. But one day the exile will end. God will rebuild creation, and not one corner of it will be stained by sin and rebellion. Until then, we have these momentary and imperfect glimpses and foretastes as we gather, hear the word, and respond together. As flawed and as imperfect as these gatherings are, they're the most truthful moment of our week, an outpost of the kingdom of God and a foretaste of eternity. I had a professor in college 
you know, in the, the Christian college I went to, I, I studied uh, worship ministry, and, and one of the uh, professors there was a 75-year-old guy named Marv, and uh, I loved Marv. He was, he was a, a veteran, uh, you know, doing church music, and, and so he taught a number of classes, and, and uh, you know, from time to time, we would, would kind of raise a question, uh, you know, it kind of came up in different formats, but, you know, Marv, what's the hardest part of doing ministry in the church or leading worship in a church? And he would always, he would always respond and say, Sunday's always coming. Sunday's always coming. And, and what he was describing was you know, there can be a certain pressure, there can be a certain um, stress on the fact that Sunday is always coming, right? It's, there's always another service to prepare for. There's always, uh, it's always on the calendar. It's not ever going to be like, oh, we don't have to do church this week. It's, it's coming, right? And so there, there's never really a break from church when you are working in ministry. But as I've, as I've gone through my life, that phrase, Sunday's coming, has grown to really actually hold great meaning for me in in a really hopeful way, because here's the reality. You and I need Sundays. We need this, because we, we go through our week, right? We're being renewed day by day, but, but there are some, some weeks, right, where it's, it's just like, I'm not feeling it. I'm not seeing the work of God, but you know what? Sunday's coming. That's good news. Right there, there are there are weeks when you're like, man, th- this this is just a particularly uh, hard week for me, and and I'm struggling with with sin issues, or like I feel like the world is just kind of coming at me. Um, Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming, where we get to come together, we get to come behold the wondrous mystery that we sang earlier, right? Where we get to take. The, the bread and, and the juice, and we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, and we let him write on our hearts again what he has done for us. And, you know, when we have an eternal perspective like Paul describes here in 2 Corinthians, ultimately we see there's a Sunday coming to end all Sundays, Right? There, there's a Sunday coming that's going to end all Sundays. Right, right now, the middle of our lives, we're living Tuesday to Saturday, Right? But one day, one day when we get to heaven, there's going to be a Sunday that's described in Revelation 5 where the angel says, Weep no more. The lamb who is slain is worthy to open the scroll. There's a Sunday coming. And for us, the rhythm of coming together in this week like we do reminds us of that truth. Ultimately, Paul is showing us in his letter to the Corinthians here that our perspective on, on how God works in our lives, right? We're living in the middle, and, and we know God's at work. Sometimes it's hard to see it. Paul reminds us, and he, he, he encourages us that our perspective on how God works must be eternal. We must have an eternal perspective. So when, when we're tempted to get impatient, kind of restless with what we perceive as slow growth, we need to be reminded that transformation comes from belief, right? The, the treasure that we hold, that's where our transformation comes from. That leads us 
to worship. And ultimately, through that, God receives all the glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we recognize that in our weakness, you are made strong and you are glorified. We ask that you continue to enlighten us so that we can see, take that to heart. Lord, we know that you are at work beneath the surface. Sometimes we, it's difficult to see. It feels far off, but Lord, we, we know that uh, as, as, you have, as you have chosen to manifest your power through us, you, you are choosing and, and will glorify us one day, and we will be with you and we'll be in your presence. As we look forward to that day, Lord, may we, may we take hope, may we have faith, and may we share the good news of you at work to those around us. In your name we pray, amen.